The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Uh, well, I was able to privilege to meet several visitors today, uh, mostly first-time visitors. Thank you so much for uh, being with us today. Uh, came for various reasons, maybe here for the holidays, visiting family, others um, for different reasons. So, But we are always blessed when we have visitors in our midst. This time of our worship service, we go to God's Word together, and uh, we trust that the Holy Spirit, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit is our main teacher, and we want to learn together what He says in His Word. This is how God speaks to us today, we believe, through His written Word. That was His plan. It is truth. It is authoritative. It is without error. It's practical. It helps change our thinking, which helps change our lives in accordance with what pleases God. And so that's why we study the Bible. And so we are going through 1 Corinthians. This is a, a letter that actually the Apostle Paul wrote 2,000 years ago to a church that he started or planted, that he pastored for a year and a half, and then he'd been away for a few years, and now he's writing back to them to answer some of their questions uh, that they asked him in writing, that they also asked him through messengers that they sent his way. And he's writing to answer questions, but also to correct some of their behavior. Um, so he's doing some problem solving all through 16 chapters of this book we call First Corinthians. We've actually preached, and we're starting. We started in the beginning, and we're preaching through the whole thing, all the way to the end of 16. And now we are in chapter 11, uh, the middle of the chapter. That's what we're going to look at today, and we're going to look at what Paul had to say to the Corinthians in verses 23 to 26. Because last week uh, we looked at what Paul had to say in verses 17 to 22. Uh, in terms of the big picture, setting the context for you again. Uh, the book of Corinthians is broken down logically the way Paul wrote it. And in this big section, chapters 11 to 14, Paul is addressing uh, the church collectively as a body as they gather in the public corporate worship time together, the, the public gathering. Uh, those are topics that he's addressing in chapters 11 through 14. Because prior to chapter 11, for 10 chapters, he was dealing with more personal matters for the Christian in a lot of ways. Uh, but the big emphasis here is on issues relevant to the church as it gathers uh, for us. Typically, that's on the Lord's Day. On a Sunday, it can be other times as well. Um, and mostly what he's dealing with is he's addressing problems, things the Corinthians were doing wrong, areas where they were being disobedient, areas where maybe they had the wrong attitude or a sinful attitude, or some areas where they just uh, were being ignorant. So it's a combination of a lot of things. But the important thing is, is it's corrective. Uh, they needed to be straightened out. And so uh, Paul begins chapter 11 by commending them for receiving most of what he said as an apostle and trying to emulate and practice the Christian faith that he handed down. But as, as he was away with time, uh, problems crept in, wrong thinkings crept in, wrong practices crept in and continued to grow until some of it just got totally out of hand and even downright embarrassing. And so um, he has to address those difficult issues in chapters 11 through 14 in the public setting. Um, last week we introduced this issue where they were abusing the Lord's table or communion. Jesus was the one who instituted the Lord's Supper or communion. He said it was to be practiced by the church repeatedly and continually until he returns someday in the future. It was a holy and reverent and solemn occasion to be practiced by the church corporately when they come together, primarily to remember 
the Lord, who he is, and the work that he's done on behalf of sinners. Well, the Corinthians were practicing communion, and they were attaching it to a meal, because that's what it was. It was The Last Supper was a meal. Uh, but over time, they lost focus. And instead of in Christ alone and having their eyes focused on Christ and him alone during communion time, they became self-centered and focusing on themselves, their needs, their wants, how they could be served, what their preferences were. And that just grew ugly rather quickly. And, and so their celebrations of the communion supper just totally became out of control and really a public embarrassment, an embarrassment to the church within and also to observers on the outside because it was so terrible. So here they are supposed to be gathering as a church on the Lord's Day, celebrating communion, remembering what Jesus did for sinners, remembering their sin, and instead they're gathering for the Lord's table at a supper, just concerned about how much food they're going to get, and hopefully they're going to get there before everybody else so they could get at the front of the line for supper so they can get the best choice of the food and the best choice of the desserts and the best choice of the wines and the alcohol, and so much so that... Apparently, the richer class among them was able to get free time and get to the church gathering quicker than those who didn't have money or means. And these rich Christians were indulging themselves, gorging themselves at this sacred meal called communion to the point where they're eating all the food before some of the other people even got there. And even engaging, drinking in alcohol to the point they're becoming drunk at church during communion. Really. And that's how we ended and concluded last week where Paul was aghast and really didn't have much to say other than I cannot believe that some of you are even becoming drunk at the Lord's table as you gather with the church. I, I have nothing to say to that. Unbelievable. And so in light of that, we'll pick up verse 23, setting the context so he identifies what they're doing wrong, gross, and sinful. And now he's going to say, you know, we just need a reminder of the, the simple basics of what the Lord's Supper is. Who gave it? Why Jesus gave it? The simplicity and beauty of it. The reverence of it. And go back to square one and practice it accordingly. And immediately stop this self-centered, gross behavior that really is sacrilegious and a blasphemy and a horrible testimony in the name of Christ. So we're going to look at the Lord's Supper as it was meant to be, as it was instituted by Jesus himself, verses 23 to 26. So follow along as Paul goes on in his discussion with them after rebuking them for abusing it. Here's how it should be done. Verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks... He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant, my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's it. So that is... Paul's rendition, divinely inspired, of all there was to the Lord's Supper. And it's very, it's a, there's a beautiful simplicity there. This is not complicated or difficult to understand. Now he's going to pick up at verse 27. We'll look at next week as he again highlights their abuse of it. And again, he's being corrective. But today we're just going to look at 
the institution of the Lord's Supper the way Jesus intended it to be practiced and the theology of it. The Apostle Paul is the only one that gives us a theology of communion, a theology of the Lord's Supper. In other words, he explains further what Jesus meant by the Lord's Supper. So I I came up with four points that I want to highlight today based on our text uh, of the Lord's Supper. The title of the sermon is The Lord's Supper. Uh, The reason I chose the phrase The Lord's Supper is from our context in 1 Corinthians 11, 20. The Apostle Paul said, Therefore, when you Corinthians come together, when you gather together as a church body for the corporate assembly, many times on the Lord's Day, with the intention of worshiping God and fellowshipping together and celebrating the Lord's meal, that was your intention, but you abused it. Therefore, when you come together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. They intended to eat the Lord's Supper, but it really wasn't. They polluted it and desecrated it. But here, Paul calls communion the Lord's Supper. I'll have you know, that is the only time in the Bible that communion is called the Lord's Supper. This is it. It has become for us one of the most popular ways to designate this ordinance we call communion is the Lord's Supper, appropriately so. I think Paul's trying to remind them, when you come together to celebrate communion, it's not about you. How much food you get, where you are in line, it is about the Lord. It is the Lord's Supper. He is the host at the Lord's Supper. You are a guest at the Lord's Supper. I mean, think about that. If you were a guest at Thanksgiving, just think about how where you went, who the host was, and how you were to comply and act in the decorum with which you were supposed to act as a, as a guest of somebody else's house. I was a host of this Thanksgiving. It changes from year to year. And so I was thinking, how, how was I as a host? What was I supposed to do? And how are my guests supposed to behave? And my guests behave very appropriately. And so Paul's reminding the Corinthians, first and foremost, it is the Lord's Supper. It is his meal. You are there by invitation. He is in charge. He's the sinless, almighty God in the flesh. It is a privilege to be there. He has defined it. He explains its meaning and significance. And we need to go with humble, reverent uh, adoration at this blessed, privileged celebration. But it is Jesus' supper, His meal. So that is very appropriate to um, recalibrate their thinking of priority number one. This is all about Christ. So before we get into the four points, just by way of reminder, we, you know, no doubt with this many people, we all come from a lot of different backgrounds, uh, religious and non-religious. Those of you maybe who have a religious background, whether it was uh, Lutheran or Catholic or Anglican or some Orthodox church, or an independent Bible church, Baptist church, Presbyterian, Methodist, I could go on and on. If it was a Mormon background, Jehovah's Witness background, all these backgrounds have some form of communion or the Lord's Supper or Eucharist. But they don't agree. Sometimes on its practice, its methodology, the elements used, but mostly they don't agree on the interpretation of why we do it. And so thankfully God sets the record straight through the Apostle Paul. It's very clear all those questions are answered from Jesus and from Paul. So we'll see those answers from this text. But just regarding the terminology before we get into the four points regarding what we want to call it, I call it the Lord's Supper today because that's what the word Paul used in 1 Corinthians 11.20. But some of us know it as the breaking of bread, which is legitimate because that's in the book of Acts. That's probably its first designation, actually. Acts chapter 2. 
called the breaking of bread, Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 20. It was uh, at least three times in the book of Acts as they celebrated communion, they called it the breaking of bread. Uh, It's also known as the Eucharist. Eucharist. That's what primarily the Catholic Church refers it to. They have seven ordinances. Actually, they call them sacraments. The Catholic Church does, seven. We would say that Jesus actually only gave two specifically to the church, but the Catholic Church has seven. And one of those is they call the Holy Eucharist, which they would also call communion. And uh, they get the word uh, from this passage, actually, uh, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four. And when Jesus had given thanks, Eucharisto, Eucharist, that's where that word is used two times in this passage, so that's why the Catholic Church ended up adopting Eucharist as the title for communion. So it, we can call it Eucharist as long as we have a biblical understanding, knowing that it just simply meant to give thanks. And that's totally appropriate when we have communion. We are giving thanks to the Lord uh, at communion. So it's called the Eucharist. Uh, it's also called the Lord's Table. Paul referred to it as the Lord's Table actually in this book, 1 Corinthians 10 21. Uh, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And he was referring to communion. So he calls, so that's how it, it's popularly also called the Lord's table, which is synonymous with the Lord's supper. It's Jesus's table. He is the host. We are privileged guests to be there. Uh, it's also called communion. That comes from first Corinthians 10 as well. If you want to flip back and look at verse 16, as Paul's talking about communion or the Lord's table and the Corinthians abuse of it and diluting it with, demonic influences verse 16 is not the cup of blessing during communion which we bless a sharing or king james says a communion in the blood of christ is not the lord's table a communion in the blood of christ that's where the word communion comes from the king james version literally the greek word though is koinonia which means fellowship or sharing So that's why the New American Standard says, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? King James says, a communion in the blood of Christ. So that's where the word communion comes from. Communion means to share with other people, primarily share your lives. And for Christians, it's sharing your lives on the highest plane, spiritually speaking. So that is appropriate. At the time of communion, when we come together, it's not just about me. It's not about self. As a matter of fact, the ordinance was given to the church, the church body, the community. It was not supposed to be celebrated in isolation by yourself. Uh, that's shown all throughout church history as well. And even the terminology that Paul uses, it is community oriented. It is for when you gather, when you gather, when you gather. Paul said that three, four times in Corinthians. That the Lord's table is supposed to be celebrated in communion when you gather as the public assembly of the church as a body, as a whole, not in isolation. And it's most appropriate that it's called a koinonia, a commun- communion or a fellowship. There are times where Some believers are housebound and they can't get out of their house to be with the saints and I think it is appropriate to go give them communion in their home or where they're isolated so they also can be considered a part of the greater body of Christ. But that's where the word communion comes from and then we already talked about where the Lord's Supper comes from this uh, chapter in chapter 11. So all those titles are legitimate as long as we understand them properly. So let's go ahead and look at our outline and also the passage verses 23 to 26. So we can be reoriented to the basics of the meaning of communion. Uh, Jesus instituted communion as a permanent ordinance for the church. Paul reminds the Corinthians of its meaning and sacred nature. So number one, first we want to look at the context of communion, which is the Passover. 
So you can't forget that. If you don't have a good understanding of the Old Testament, there, you just can't fully appreciate communion or the Lord's Supper because it is, everything about it is rooted in the Old Testament. So in light of that, being that the context of the Lord's Supper is Passover, if you have your Bible, look at Exodus 12. We just can't skip this. This is absolutely vital. As a matter of fact, the, the Last Supper that became the first communion was actually an Old Testament Passover meal and celebration. They were celebrating Passover at that time when Jesus actually changed or transformed the Passover into the first communion. So there's some continuity between God's people in the Old Testament, the Israelites, to the new people, the new man, the church in the New Testament as he transformed that sacred meal. And we're just going to look a little bit at Exodus 12. We can't go through all of this. Exodus 12, the first Passover Uh, What had just happened, uh, this is the time of Moses. We're talking 1400 B.C., so we're talking 3,400 years ago. Uh, There's a new movie coming out called Exodus. I am so excited to see that. Not, you're laughing. Why? Because Hollywood is doing it. Uh Uh-oh, hold your breath. They are going to mess up so much stuff. But anyway, I don't want to go see it, but i got to go see it. Anyway, so Exodus 12, the time of Moses, 3,400 years ago, 1400 B.C., Moses and over a million Jews are slaves in Egypt with a wicked Pharaoh. And God is going to lead his people out of Egypt into the promised land. And in order, but Pharaoh's not going to let him go. So God does ten plagues that devastate the Pharaoh. And the last one is the plague of the death of the firstborn. And at midnight, God warns Moses and his people. Tell the elders, tell the people. At midnight, I, Almighty God, Yahweh, I, Sometimes we say the angel of death. God says about five times in there, I, I will go out at midnight and I am going to slay, kill the firstborn in every home from the Pharaoh down to the poorest uh, woman who has a child firstborn. And I will slay the firstborn in every home unless they have the blood that I require outside on the front of their house. If there is blood, if there is shed blood from a lamb, on that house, then I will pass over and I will not kill or execute anybody in that home. I will pass over in grace. I will pass over with forgiveness. I will pass over with atonement. I will pass over and provide a deliverance. I will pass over and provide a rescue for sinners who deserve death. By virtue of the blood, by the lamb that would die as a substitute for the sinners in that home. In obedience to me by faith, I, the Lord God, won't judge in my holy wrath. Anyone in that home that has the blood and does exactly what I require, the blood of a slain lamb will absorb my wrath to my satisfaction. And we will call this meal, and then you'll have a meal, Moses. Uh, So that's Exodus chapter 12. So uh, the Lord is talking to Moses and Aaron. They were the leaders. And then in verse 3, he said, Speak to all the congregation of Israel. Again, there were over a million Jews or Israelites who had to hear this injunction. And Moses tell the Jews or the Israelites this, on the 10th of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves. So it was a, a, supposed to be a, a, a young, male, spotless, perfect lamb for every Jewish family. And if the family was too small and couldn't afford a lamb, they were supposed to join with their neighbor. And they'd pull in and share that lamb together. So it was a community event. Each one of you is to take a lamb for themselves. Uh, verse 4. Um, oh, and then uh, verse 5. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, perfect lamb. See, this is all a picture of Jesus, the coming Messiah, 
1400 years later. Jesus would be a male. Jesus would be perfect. Jesus would be spotless. Jesus would be unblemished without sin as the God man. The only adequate substitute to provide forgiveness of sin for sinners. That's why this was so important. An unblemished male lamb. That's why in his first public appearance, John the Baptist, the forerunner, pointed at Jesus and cried at the top of his lungs in John chapter 1, verse 29, and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. As he pointed to Jesus, the beginning of his ministry. Jesus, the Lamb of God. That takes us immediately back to Exodus 12. Every Jew or Israelite who heard that knew exactly what John the Baptist was talking about. The incarnate Lamb of God, the one who fulfills all these types and prophecies, of the lambs, the literal animals in the Old Testament. Jesus fulfills that once and for all. The last lamb ever needed to be slaughtered. This is prophetic. You shall keep the spotless lamb, verse 6, until the 14th day of the same month. About 10 days, they'd keep it, they'd own it, they'd get to know it. It would be attached to them, it would be part of the family. They probably uh, were attached to it even emotionally, and then after that it was to be killed. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill the lamb at twilight. And they were to take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts. And then that's when I said that uh, God himself will come and pass over every house that had the shed blood. Because somebody had to be killed whenever there's sin. Sin requires death. Death is the uh, penalty for sin. Every sin requires the death penalty. And so God is providing a sacrifice. He's providing what is required for sin. He's providing a substitute in this animal that would be killed on behalf of sinners if they believed it by faith. And then they were to wait and pray and sing. And then God in His wrath passed over that house. And then it was a time of celebration. And then from that point on, God said, when you go into the promised land, you need to celebrate the Passover every single year at the same time, perpetually and forevermore. And you are to celebrate it as a memorial. Look at uh, Exodus 12, verse 14. Now, this day will be a memorial to you. A memor- what is a memorial? A memorial is an event or a celebration or a holiday or a feast where the people gather together and they remember. That's primarily what it is. It's remembering, remembering the significance of it. Here are symbols. This lamb is actually just a symbol of something greater. So when you celebrate the Passover, it's a memorial. It's a symbol of something greater. That's what the Passover was. And so when the Jews, for the next 1400 years were celebrating Passover before Jesus came. They were remembering how God in the Old Testament delivered them from the wrath of God, how, how he passed over. So they're remembering a deliverance of God. They're remembering a physical salvation that God provided. That's what it means by a memorial. It was, when they celebrated the Passover from this time forward, there was nothing mystical about it. It didn't confer any supernatural blessings. It was strictly a memorial to remember what great deed that God had done at the time of the Passover, delivering them from physical death, a memorial. The reason that's important in Exodus twelve fourteen, when it calls Passover a memorial is because that is what Paul says that the Lord's table is. It is a memorial. It's the same terminology used in the Passover. It's not a mystic festival. It's simply a memorial. As a matter of fact, it's a memorial, and part of the memorial is supposed to be that the parents were supposed to use the visual aids of the cute little lamb getting slaughtered in blood. And the children, it says, are going to say, Mommy and Daddy, what's going on? Why are you killing the lamb? And God says, and then Moses, you are to, the parents are supposed to tell the children the meaning of all the actions. These visual aids are supposed to teach the theology 
that God in His goodness and God in His mercy passed over those who obeyed by virtue of the substitutionary blood that was slain on their behalf. And the same with communion in the Lord's table. God has given us a visual aid through the cup and the bread as a memorial, as a visual aid, as an object lesson to explain to the world, to explain to ourselves and be reminded of Jesus' greatness and what He did for us and also for our children. Daddy, why on Sundays do you eat that bread and drink that grape juice? Great question. Here's why. And you explain the meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection and how He provides eternal life by virtue of His sacrifice for sinners. That is the gospel. That's a proclamation of the gospel. And Paul uses that word every time we celebrate communion the right way. It is a proclamation. A proclamation. Used 17 times in the New Testament. A proclamation. Proclaiming verbally the truth of the good news in Jesus Christ. So that is the backbone. backbone. That is the context the Passover meal. So let's go ahead now back to 1 Corinthians 11 in the context. Keeping your finger in 1 Corinthians 11, go to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22 uh, gives us a little bit more about this context that it was the Passover. Now Luke 22 verse 1 says, by the way, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all give the similar details about 1 Corinthians 11, very parallel to what Paul said. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, when Paul was writing Corinthians in around 55 A.D., it's very likely that none of the Gospels were written yet. They didn't even exist. So Paul's not copying verbatim from one of the Gospels when he's writing 1 Corinthians 11. As a matter of fact, uh, Paul wrote his epistle before the Gospels were written. Matthew, the first Gospel. Let me say that again. Matthew, the first Gospel, probably wasn't written yet or was just being written. Paul didn't have access to it probably. But they're almost identical in what they say because uh, the believers remembered what Jesus said and they knew it was of the utmost importance and they had phenomenal memories also guided by the Holy Spirit and that's why the truth has been preserved with integrity wherever we see it in all four written accounts much later. So, uh, going to Luke, Luke was, uh, by the way, Luke was an associate of the Apostle Paul. He was Paul's doctor and companion in ministry. It's interesting that Luke, his terminology and his account of the Lord's Supper is most closely related or almost identical to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. That doesn't mean Paul got it from Luke. Luke probably got it from Paul, very possible, uh, or at least from a tradition that had been preserved but it's all the same. Going back to Luke 22, now the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, it was a week-long celebration culminating in the Passover meal, which is called the Passover was approaching. This is the last week of Jesus' life. He's about to die. He knows he's going to die. He came to die. He was born to die for sinners. It is the holiest week of the entire Israelite calendar, not by coincidence, but by God's plan. The Jews, uh, Pharisees, they wanted to kill him much earlier. They wanted to kill him months earlier when it wouldn't have been Passover week. God would have had none of it. The Messiah needed to die during the Passover week. The Messiah needed to die on the feast of the Passover because he was the Lamb of God. God is absolutely, totally in charge. As a matter of fact, the Pharisees who killed him said, no, we can't arrest him and kill him during Passover week. There's too many people around, too many people watching, too many people who follow him. We'll create a riot. We cannot kill him during Passover. And when did they kill him? During Passover. Because that's what God said. He is the Lamb of God. He will die on Passover. Amazing. 
So it's the week of the Passover. And then the night of the Passover, verse 14. When the hour had come, what hour? For Jesus to die according to God the Father's timetable. Jesus reclined down on the ground. That's the way they ate. And the apostles with him. First with the 12 apostles, then Judas was dismissed later. And Jesus said to his apostles, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover. There it is. The Lord's Supper was a Passover meal. I have desired earnestly to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Jesus told them, this is the last meal I'm going to have with you. The last Passover I have with you, but someday, here's my promise. I will eat and sup and fellowship with you again at the greatest Passover of all in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven in the future when he comes and we see that in revelation 19 the supper of the lamb beautiful feast at the end of the ages so this is even a even prophetic of something greater yet to come verse 17 and when Jesus had taken a cup and given thanks he said take this and share it among yourselves for I say to you I will not drink the fruit of the vine now until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember me. It's a memorial. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you. See, it's uh, a substitution. It's on behalf of others. It is for you. This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant, my blood. And so basically that is repeated also in Matthew and in Mark. And then John gives this extended description of their last meal together. So the context of communion is Passover, and we can't forget it. Uh, So every time we celebrate communion, it is the greatest Passover with the greatest Passover lamb in the history of the world. Some similarities between the Lord's Supper and the Passover were that they were celebrated in homes originally in the early church, didn't meet in church buildings like we are. They met in... Christian homes or places that could accommodate a group of people. Sometimes they met outside. Uh, The Passover meal and the Lord's Supper was to be perpetual and ongoing. Uh, The Lord's Supper was to be often, weekly, and even more often than that. The Passover was ongoing, but it was once a year. Uh, Both meals were to be with community, with other believers, not in isolation by yourself. Uh, Both were to be a celebration of joy. That is seen clearly in the Old Testament. It's a celebration of joy. And so also is the Lord's table supposed to be celebrated with great joy. That's what it says in the book of Acts, that when the saints got together, uh, they celebrated with great joy. So it's not uh, a dismal funeral service. It is a joyous celebration because Jesus has accomplished and finished his work on behalf of sinners. It's a time of celebration. So sometimes we forget that. By the way, the the Lord's Supper, it was a meal, like a real supper. As a matter of fact, if it was a Passover supper, it could be that it was like a three or four course meal that went on for maybe a couple of hours, the Lord's Supper. So it was an actual meal. We we miss that in our day and age. We come and we have church and then at the end of the meeting we tack on this thing we call the Lord's Supper and everybody gets a little plastic cup with a couple of drops of grape juice or whatever. And then we get a flat piece of bread. Like, What's up with that? That is not a meal. So you've got to use your imagination and no Bible history to really get the full picture. This was a full-fledged meal, and it was in Corinth as they were having the Lord's table. It was extended time together. And a meal all throughout consistently through the Bible. When you have a meal with someone, it is a time of celebration. It is a time of joy. It is a time of intimacy, a time of fellowship, a time of friendship, a time of peace, and a time of festivity, and of eating and taking it and celebrating. 
which is the exact opposite of a fast. We're not fasting at the Lord's table. We are celebrating because the Lord Jesus has come, fulfilled his purpose, risen from the dead, and he's even in our midst. It's a time not for fasting, but celebration with a meal at the time of the Lord's table. And that was true of the Passover meal, time of celebration, and the Lord's table. And it was also, as I pointed out earlier, it was supposed to be both of them are memorials, something we remember. So when we celebrate the Lord's table at communion, one of the main things we're supposed to do while we're eating the bread and drinking the cup is we're supposed to be remembering. That's the, that's the command we are remembering. What are we remembering? We're remembering Jesus and how awesome he is. We remember his death and resurrection on behalf of sinners. We're supposed to remember that vividly. We're supposed to remember that we are sinners. We don't deserve anything. And he saved me personally through his gospel. And I believed and I'm remembering that and how he graciously selected me and forgave me and has forgiven me of all of my sins. That's all of the remembering that's supposed to go on in that ordinance that gives us such great joy. Reenacting it in our mind over and over again of how gracious God is and also reminding ourselves of how sinful we are. We don't stop sinning. We need God's ongoing practical forgiveness in our life. And communion is a visible way to remind us of that great reality. So the context of communion is Passover. Let's go on to number two and verses 24 and 25. And that's the covenant of communion. By the way, communion is a covenant. Paul says that clearly in verses 24 and 25. Um, He says, and when he had given thanks... He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It's a memorial. Verse 25, in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So it's, it's a covenant. When God gave Moses the law in the Old Testament, after he gave him the law and the Mosaic covenant, he had Moses kill an animal, take some of the blood, and sprinkle the blood on the people as the sign of the covenant. So the blood was the seal of the covenant. So also Jesus is saying, My death and my bloodshed for you is the seal of this new covenant that you get to partake in. Now, if I were to ask you this question, does the church participate in the new covenant? Or if I were to ask you, as a Christian, do you partake in the new covenant? So who knows what your answer is going to be? I'm not going to predict what your answer will be. I don't know if anybody's ever asked you that question before. Because it's actually not an easy question to answer. That phrase, the new covenant, comes out of the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, uh, 500 years, 600 years before Christ, where God promised, God was talking to Israel. And he said, to you, Israel, to you, Judah, I'm going to make a new covenant in the future. He wasn't talking to the church. He wasn't talking to Christians. He was talking to Israel, his covenant people. So to you, Judah, to you, Israel, I will make a new covenant sometime in the future. And he repeated it in Ezekiel 36. In Ezekiel 30, several places he repeated the new covenant. But the phrase the new covenant occurs in Jeremiah 31, 31. So today it is not uncommon for many people to say uh, the church does not participate in the new covenant because it was a promise made to Israel. I, I have recently surveyed some of my old professors at my old seminary and I asked the question repeatedly. I got three different answers. So does the church participate in the new covenant here are the answers i got at my seminary my esteemed seminary my perfect seminary or their theology is just ironclad does the church participate in the new covenant um one person yeah absolutely okay next person next professor does the church participate in the new covenant well partially partially 
Yeah, not fully, but partially. Oh, and then a long discussion after that. And then another professor, does the church participate in the new covenant? Oh, no, absolutely not. So that's just a glimpse to show you it's not as easy as you think. And there are reasons behind that. But uh, Paul makes it clear to the church. He says point blank. When Jesus gave communion to the apostles were the foundation of the church that Paul reiterates here to the church people, the one new man in Christ, he says that Jesus said in verse 25, in the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant. If you're a Christian and you celebrate communion according to the Bible, you are participating in the new covenant. Isn't that exciting? So here's what my answer is. Uh, are you a participant and partaker of the new covenant? As stated in Jeremiah 31, 31. Absolutely. Absolutely. Partially now, fully later in the future. When I get to also join Israel as a nation who is redeemed. And then there are other realities that get fulfilled at that time. So it's now and not yet. And it's partial and yet full. And that's true of many things in our life as Christians. Have you been saved? Yes, and still not fully, right? I don't have my resurrection body yet. But I've been saved. So salvation uh, comes in different phases in terms of what you're talking about, and that is also true of the New Covenant. I participate in the New Covenant by virtue of the fact that I am connected to the Messiah who is the mediator of the New Covenant. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul said, he and the apostles and the preachers were ministers of the New Covenant. Hebrews says that Jesus is the mediator of the one New Covenant that applies to the church. So absolutely, the church participates in the New Covenant. And by the way, what are the main promises that God said to Jeremiah and Ezekiel that were elements or truths about this new covenant. In contrast to Mosaic Old Covenant, which was strictly legal and external, the new covenant would be internal, a work on the heart. It would be given by Yahweh. It would be mediated through the Messiah. If you know Jesus, then he's the mediator. It would be an internal transaction, not external like the Mosaic Law. It would be a work on the heart. So when God saved you and you believed the gospel, that's when it began and kicked in. That all of your sins would be forgiven, says Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And through Jesus' death, all my sins are forgiven. That's by virtue of the new covenant. The one sacrifice of the Messiah provided that possible, and that was the death of Jesus. So, And then Ezekiel promises that the, you will also have the Holy Spirit living in you as a believer, which was not true in the Old Testament. Believers in the Old Testament did not have the Holy Spirit living in them the way we do today. That is huge. That's the component or the element that i am most excited about is wow what an unbelievable privilege we have the spirit of god living in us at the moment we believe in the gospel that is a result of the promise of the new covenant now there are a couple of components of the new covenant that we don't enjoy now but i think we will in the future and that was there was a promise regarding all of the land that had never been fulfilled to the nation of israel that will be fulfilled in the future and we will be a part of that so that is yet future and then also all of israel will be gathered and redeemed in one people and look on their Messiah whom they have pierced and mourn for him as a blessed Savior. That is yet to come. We will get to witness that in the future. So uh, we are partakers of the new covenant partially now and fully in the future. And that's what we celebrate at the time of communion is this blessed new covenant relationship that Jesus lives in me through the Holy Spirit. Also in that passage in verse 24 and 25, two times, Paul says, it is, do this in remembrance, in remembrance. Again, it's just a memorial. There's nothing mystical that happens. That's been the debate for all these years. From the Roman Catholic Church to Luther to Calvin to denominations ever since, trying to interpret what does this mean? What did it mean when Jesus said, this is my body? 
And people were always trying to get some kind of mystical meaning of it. He was being metaphorical. That's all. It was a symbol. That was all. Kind of like when he said, um, I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the shepherd. I am the door. It was metaphorical. In John 6, he said, I am the bread from heaven. Eat my flesh. He was not talking about communion at all. It was a metaphor. He's inviting people to believe in him. That's all. So there is no presence in the bread and the wine. The presence of Jesus isn't in the bread, it's in you. <laughs> Would you ever, isn't that a greater reality? How do I have the presence of Jesus in me instead of in the bread I'm eating? So that's the, the great truth. It's, it's a memorial. Remember Jesus and what he did for us and that he put his spirit in us and his presence is real and it is there. But it's not in the bread, it is in me and it's in every other believer corporately while we have communion together. That is awesome. So we partake in this new covenant. So the context is Passover. The covenant is the Holy Spirit. And then number three, verse 26, the command. What is the command? To, to take it often, repeatedly, in an ongoing manner. Verse 26 says, for as often as you eat this, or we are to eat it often, regularly, routinely. As a matter of fact, the command technically is in verse 24 when he says, do this, do this, do this. Present tense, imperative. Present imperative, that means to continually do it, repeatedly do it, moving into the future. That is the command. So it's not a one-time thing that we practice. It's an ongoing, continual, repeated ordinance Jesus gave to the church that we remember his one-time sacrifice for us on the cross. It is a command. And so as churches, you're not supposed to neglect communion. Some Christians, uh, avant-garde Christians, hip Christians, independent Christians, um, think that is their prerogative to decide not to have communion or partake in communion or participate with other believers in communion and they relegate it to almost total insignificance which is sad because it's one of the most beautiful reverent intimate celebrations the church can have together remembering what christ has done on our behalf and, G and jesus said to do it repeatedly and often and that is a command that is not an option so there are churches that don't have communion at all as a part of their practice and that's a shame because he goes on to say part of when we have communion, we're remembering personally. There's another thing. We're not just remembering. It's not just self-oriented or inward-oriented. It's also to be outward-oriented to others because that's the last part of verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim. Kata angelo. Angelo. Angel. That's where the word angel. A messenger. We're supposed to be a messenger. We're supposed to be making a proclamation of biblical gospel truth every time we have communion together. And by the way, that's we'll see this in chapter 14. In their public assemblies, the saints came and gathered together, but every once in a while, unbelievers would be there and they'd be observing the Christians together in their worship service. And the Christians would kind of be watching what they're doing. Wow, this is kind of interesting with the speaking in tongues phenomenon. What's up with, with that? And this prophesying and this communion thing they do. I don't know of any other religion that does it the way they do. What are they doing? Well, it was to be a proclamation of the gospel truth if an unbeliever was there and watching of what Jesus did. That is the word in verse 26. So that is the command, to do it and to do it often. And then finally, number four, uh, the confusion over communion. So this is the simplicity in which God gave it and reiterated it through Paul. And then over time, false thinking crept in little by little throughout centuries of church history. And a little truth turned into a, I mean, a little 
uh, mistake turn into a big mistake over time in many different ways. And so now the true meaning of communion or the Lord's Supper is incredibly distorted and clouded from its biblical origins. And I just wanted to deal with three briefly that are the most popular. There's the view of transubstantiation, and that is the view of the Roman Catholic Church. I grew up Catholic for 19 years. I went to 12 years of Catholic school. I had 12 years of Catholic theology. So I, I, I was trained in Catholic theology and the meaning of transubstantiation early on. And I was told when I was in first grade, because that's when I had first communion, that when the priest stands up there at the mass, they don't go to church, you go to mass. The, the priest, the priest, is behind an altar, sacrificial altar, and he takes bread and he takes real wine, not grape juice, and he raises it up over the altar and he says a prayer. When he says that prayer, supernaturally and miraculously, the bread literally turns into the body of Jesus. Transubstantiation, that's what that means. I mean, literally, even the molecules have changed from bread into Jesus' human body. That's what they believe. And so that's why when I was in first grade all the way through seventh grade till I finally caught on, and I'm watching from the mass from a distance as the priest does that, and I was, and then the priest will drink the cup, and, I was always, and then he'd wipe his mouth with a white uh, hanky, and I was always looking for the red blood uh, as a little kid because they told me he's turning uh, wine into Jesus' blood. I can't believe this. And for many years... Even when I was young, as the Catholic Church, I was not allowed to take communion. Only the priest was allowed. Yet Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, communion is supposed to be a sharing together. Jesus said in Matthew 26, all of you should drink it. Yet for the longest time, it was restricted only to a select few. And so the idea was that the body literally becomes, or the bread literally becomes Jesus' body. So when you're eating it, you are eating Jesus, literally. And I remember talking to a Catholic saying, well, isn't that cannibalism? And he said, well, technically, yes. But that's what Jesus said to do. And he quotes John 6. No, Jesus was being metaphorical. So that would be the Catholic view of transubstantiation that is now a formal doctrine. By the way, that was not a doctrine of the church for the first 500 years of church history. Came later, developed later, little by little, incrementally, nuanced here, nuanced there. Uh, first with Gregory, Pope Gregory in 600 A.D., where he made it a dogma, but not without resistance. There was great resistance to it because it was weird. It came from the pagans. But he kept pushing it, and sections of the church kept pushing it. And then it was uh, systematized and nuanced even more under Thomas Aquinas in the 1200s. And he wasn't a biblical theologian. He was a philosophical uh, who, a philosopher who relied on Latin. And so he systematized transubstantiation, and finally it was embraced formally, universally by the church, the Catholic Church in 1450 after the Reformation at the Council of Trent. And ever since then, that's been the formal Catholic view, transubstantiation. We don't believe that. It's not in the Bible. Uh, Martin Luther came along. He was a, born a Catholic, raised a Catholic, trained a Catholic, was, served as a Catholic priest, believed all of Catholic dogma. Then he kept reading his Bible, and then he got saved. He realized, wow, a lot of this stuff they believe is not in the Bible. So he tried to reform the church. That didn't work. And one view that he quickly rejected was transubstantiation. He didn't believe it. So he gave his own interpretation. But the problem uh, with Luther is that he held on to still a literal view of that the, somehow Jesus becomes the bread and the wine when you're having communion. So literally, when you're taking communion, you are masticating Jesus' body. What in the world does that mean? It's a fancy word for chewing. You're chewing the body. So it's really hard to distinguish between Luther's view and the Catholic Church view. Although Luther did say it's not a sacrifice like the Catholic Church believes. But still it is Jesus' body. 
His presence is there. And we would say, no, it's just a memorial, and Jesus' presence is in the believer, not in the bread. It's just a memorial, because two times it says, remember me. It's a memorial, and that's how we're supposed to separate or celebrate it ever since. So those are probably two of the most popular views, uh, and the biggest mistake people make is they're trying to uh, make it mystical, overly mystical, and also they're attaching too much literalness when Jesus said, this is my body, when he was actually being metaphorical or symbolic, which he did all the time as a master teacher. So with that, um, I just want to close by reminding us in summary fashion of this privilege we have of celebrating communion. The next time we get together, uh, remember that it is a feast. It is, it's open to any believer. If you are a Christian, you are invited and welcomed by the Lord Jesus to come to his table. First and foremost, to remember him, his greatness, who he is as the sinless son of God, as the wonderful savior risen from the dead, who rescued you and rescued me by virtue of faith in his gospel as he died for sinners as a willing substitute, as God the Father poured out his wrath on Jesus when Jesus was hanging on the cross, dying for sinners, paying the penalty that they deserved, the, the penalty that I deserved for my sin and how he willingly went to the grave, was buried. He rose himself from the dead along with the Holy Spirit and the Father. He ascended on high. He reigns in heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father. And to this day, he's still seeking and saving sinners by virtue of his gospel and his Holy Spirit and using the church and other believers to get that saving message out. And that's the message we remember. That is the good news, and that is the good news we celebrate every time we take communion. With that, let's go ahead and pray and thank the Father for this blessed ordinance and this blessed truth. Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank you that we can gather together as you have ordained and told the church to do. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your willingness to come and live a perfect life and willingly die for sinners to absorb the Father's wrath on the cross. Thank you for your powerful resurrection, securing our salvation and victory over death. Thank you for giving us two ordinances of the church to remind us of your greatness in the gospel, baptism and the Lord's Supper. God, even prepare us even now with your Holy Spirit and reminders from biblical truth for the next time we're able to celebrate communion with God's people, that we will celebrate it with the meaning that you have ordained at a time of celebrating you and your awesome work and all you've done on our behalf. We give you the glory for it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.